Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome to Drive-In Double Feature Movie Review Podcast. In the month of October, we have been reviewing the movies of Kevin Smith. We previously reviewed Clerks and Mallrats. Today we'll be reviewing Kevin Smith's 1999 release of Dogma. With me is Ted. Any moron with a pack of matches can light a, can set a fire. Raining down sulfur is like an endurance test, man. Mass genocide is the most exhausting activity one can engage in, next to soccer. Wow, that was a mouthful. And Eric. The major sins never change. And I'm Ken, your host today, while enjoying my central air. Let's get things started with Eric. Eric, give us the info on Dogma. Well, Dogma was the fourth movie from Kevin Smith. It was released on November 12, 1999. Had a budget of about $10 million and grossed $30.7 million at the box office. And is currently the highest grossing film in the Kevin Smith View Ask Universe series. And here's the cast of Dogma. You have director Kevin Smith playing Silent Bob, Linda Florentino playing Bethany, Ben Affleck playing Bartleby, Matt Damon as Loki, Jason Mewes as Jay, the late great comedian George Carlin as Cardinal Glick, Jason Lee as Azrael, the late Alan Rickman as Demetatron, and Salma Hayek as Serendipity. Okay, Eric, it's my understanding that you have some reviews for us. Yes, I do. Well, Rotten Tomatoes gave this one certified fresh at 67%, and the audience score was about 85%, which is really good. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars. Uh, The critics generally like this movie. Entertainment Weekly said, it's not every day you get to see a movie that begins in satire and ends in reverence, but then for Kevin Smith, this may ultimately be the same thing. Rolling Stone Magazine's Peter Travers said, The first commandment of dogma, thou shall not stop laughing. Time Magazine said, It's a tortured testament from a true believer. Most of these were really positive reviews. There were a few uh, less than positive reviews. Obviously, you had the Catholic League that denounced the film as blasphemous, so they like to stage protests outside some of the movie houses. <laughs> I remember when that was happening in the late 90s there. Including oh, Kevin yeah. Smith himself. Including Kevin Smith, exactly, yeah. Newsweek magazine said it's uh, preposterous as the movie gets. It's clearly revealing it's his own hokiness. And Rita Kempley of the Washington Post said, for a while, the film is screamingly funny, but the further it goes, the more muddled the narrative becomes. And that's some of the reviews on Dogma. Excellent. Before we jump into our reviews, Ted has the plot for us. Take it away, Ted. At the beginning of Dogma, we're introduced to two men, Loki and Bartleby, whom we later find out are angels who have been cast out of heaven. They are cast out of heaven having had a disagreement with God over the efficacy of angels being ordered to kill humans by God. Bartleby reveals to Loki that he received an anonymous letter providing them a loophole in which they can be forgiven and re-enter heaven. The loophole is that they must enter a church in New Jersey where a special ceremony is taking place. Loki and Bartleby then set out for New Jersey. In order to stop Loki and Bartleby, the Metatron, the voice of God, is dispatched to set Bethany, a disgruntled Catholic, on a crusade to stop Loki and Bartleby. Bethany, we later find out, is a descendant of Jesus. To assist Bethany on her mission to stop Loki and Bartleby, the Metatron tells her she will be joined by two prophets, Jay and Silent Bob, and she will also be joined on the journey by Rufus, the 13th apostle who was left out of the Bible because he was black. We find out that the mastermind behind the whole scheme to get Loki and Bartleby back into heaven is Azrael, a fallen angel slash muse that was cast into hell because he would not choose a side in the battle between Satan and God. He has decided that unmaking existence is better than living in hell. Bartleby and Loki make it to New Jersey after stopping to commit murder in God's name at Movie's headquarters and having an encounter with Bethany, Jay, Silent Bob, and Rufus on a train. In order to achieve their goal of being forgiven and re-entering heaven, they must become human, which means cutting off their wings. 
During the special ceremony at the church, Loki and Bartleby rain fire and brimstone down upon the gathered masses. Loki loses his wings in the process and is betrayed by Bartleby and killed. As things begin looking like Bartleby and Loki will achieve their goal, Bethany and the crew realize they must get God to intervene. But God is missing because he never came back from a trip to Earth to play skee-ball. Bethany realizes that she knows where God is trapped. He is trapped in the body of an old man who has been hospitalized by Azrael's minions. Bethany goes to the hospital and unplugs the old man's life support, freeing God. God then appears at the entrance to the church to stop Bartleby from entering. After stopping Bartleby, God then takes Rufus and the Metatron back to heaven, but not before giving Bethany back the one thing she's always wanted, the ability to have children. Well, thank you, Ted, for the plot. Let's get into our review of Dogma. This movie made $30 million on a budget of $10 million. So what do you like and dislike about Dogma? There's a lot of things that I really like about Dogma. Dogma is definitely one of Kevin Smith's funniest movies. But I have a different sense of humor than, than some people. With me, that if you can't laugh at yourself and some of the crazy funny things that enter around everything that you do, I think that that's kind of sad. This movie is meant to be fun, and it is fun. And that's one of the things that I like most about the movie. And one of my favorite things about the movie is Buddy Christ. I think that that's hilarious. And it fits into the time when Dogma was made where the Catholic Church was trying to quote-unquote rebrand itself as being more common and hip than it really is. <laughs> Buddy Christ is something that you probably wouldn't have seen them do, but it's the sentiment that was behind some of the things that they were doing at the time. It's funny, Ted, because I was in a Catholic church uh, last year, and they had a picture of the Pope, and he was doing that kind of Buddy Christ type of thumbs up. And I was like, that's from Dogma. It's not Jesus, but it's the Pope, which basically some Catholics almost equate the Pope as almost as important as Christ himself. The current Pope is a lot more in touch with modern day than a lot of other church leaders. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me that he would be doing something similar to like a thumbs up or something like that, because he is a much more gentle and kind person than a lot of the people that have come before him. I sat down with one of the priests and they had a bobblehead doll of the Pope there. <laughs> I always think right. those kind of things are kind of funny with the Pope. But then you have also the the Jesus bobblehead dolls and you have these mugs of Jesus. Uh, if you pour it up, his beard goes on. It's kind of crazy yeah. with all the stuff they have out there now. It's It's pretty funny. This movie came out in November 99 and I saw this one in the theater with some friends of mine. I don't remember who, but I remember seeing the coming attractions for this one. I was head forward into the Kevin Smith movies and I was really looking forward to this one. And I remember seeing this movie at the theater and the crowd just went crazy. They love this movie. They were applauding at the end of it. This was a winner uh, for Kevin Smith when it came out with the crowds, at least in the movie house that I was at. This movie, there's not a lot of things about this movie that I don't like. It's one of my top two favorites. It's right up there with Mallrats. Mallrats is more of a, you know, a sophomoric comedy. High school kids hanging out in a mall, sophomoric humor. This one I consider a more highbrow comedy, if you will. I think it's more intellectual comedy. He's involving the Catholic Church. He's involving the Catholic fantasy world, if you will, of the church. And I just like the characters that are in this movie, and not to mention the actors that he got to portray them. He's got some pretty big names in here in 1999. You know, Alec Rickman, who is classically trained. You have George Carlin, who's one of the greatest comedians of all time. You have Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Salma Hayek. You've got some really big names in here that are are acting along some pretty lightweight names as uh, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes, but it really all comes together, and I really enjoyed this movie a lot. This is the first Kevin Smith movie I saw in the movie theater, and so yeah, I have a connection with that as well. And what did and the you, people, they like it? The yeah, warm reviews? Yeah. Yeah, everybody yeah. around me was of similar taste, but I completely agree, Eric. This is more intellectual comedy. As Kevin Smith likes to say, this isn't all dick and fart jokes. <laughs> There's some deep things he's coming at here. And I think that that's really the inclusion of George Carlin is absolutely brilliant. Because George Carlin, well, he was notoriously excommunicated from the Catholic Church. 
for his album Class Clown. He's always been one to lampoon people's beliefs, quote unquote. Yeah, he's always lampooned organized religion in general. Right. And I think that that's really telling at the end of the movie or where Chris Rock's character, Rufus, is telling Bethany's character about the difference between an idea and a belief and how dangerous a belief can be in comparison to an idea. There has to be something there that has direct correlation to George Carlin's humor because that's a total George Carlin bit. And it's not just Carlin with religion. It's Carlin with everything. He was always ready to lampoon somebody's hard stand on a particular subject. He lived to do that. And I think any good comedian walks that line so that I completely agree. But yeah, it's definitely a higher brow of of comedy. I guess it's not for everybody. Like we said, the Catholic League, before they even read the script, decided they were going to protest it. Protest and 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 try to stop it. That's just ridiculous. That's what they did back, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, even the 70s. I mean, you look at Life Brian, get The Last Temptation of Christ. This is not uncommon for these protests to happen, even without them even seeing the movie. From what I heard, though, is they did get a copy of the script. They would have access to read that script online to see what that was all about. But I was listening to an interview with Kevin Smith, and he feels that the Catholic Church did this more for publicity on their end than for actually going up against the movie itself you don't say (laughs) and let's be honest this is great publicity for uh for the movie itself of course it is yeah oh yeah and i can understand being a a christian watching this movie and i'm trying to not take you this seriously it's easy to say don't take this seriously in fact in first part of the movie kevin smith does this is just for fun god has a sense of humor look at the platypus but people were taking this way too seriously. Here's the thing. As a Christian, I'm watching through this movie and sometimes it does irk me. I mean, I'm trying to separate myself from my faith and trying to enjoy the movie, but there are occasions where I'm just like a little frustrated because that's not how a person of my faith at least believes. There was this idea that Jesus didn't have many brothers or sisters. That's not true. It's in the Bible that he actually has brothers. The fact that this was a shock to them and that she's the last scion because that Christ had brothers and sisters. Those type of things just irked me throughout the whole movie. It didn't stop me from enjoying the movie, but I could see where Christians or people of faith could struggle through a movie like this. If we're going to go down this road, then I will say that I grew up in the Catholic Church. It was always stressed in my learning that Jesus didn't have brothers and sisters. So for him to come out and say this, I guess Kevin Smith is a Catholic, or was, that's a big thing for them. Now, I understand where you're coming from, but that's a huge thing. And if I'm going to be completely honest, this is part of what led me to change my outlook on a lot of things. And even though, yes, it is a, it is a funny movie and all that, there are things in it that caused me to be introspective about things that I believed. So I think that that's a tell of a good movie or a good satire or a good comedy that they cause you to do some introspection and to look at how you look at things. Like I said, I'm 100% honest. Some of the things that came out of here changed how I looked at my faith. But some of the things that you're talking about, especially, like I said, the the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters, that's something that I'm not well-versed right now in how the Catholic Church looks at it. But I don't know if they've changed that. Because if you look at something like the Da Vinci Code, the Catholic Church told people not to read the Da Vinci Code or see the movies. But you shouldn't see the movie because it's bad. There's still a huge issue with that. And I can see where they would be upset with it. But at the end of the day, it is a comedy. And this is my personal opinion. If your faith is that fragile, that a movie of satire and comedy causes you to have a crisis, then you have other issues that you need to be. It's not a question of, for some people, a faith being fragile. It's just a respect of the faith in general. So like someone like me, it's not going to affect my faith at all. But at the same time, you cringe because for someone of true faith, that belief is their life. The goal is for me to be in the kingdom of heaven. That's the end game. That's my focus. This is just the bus ride to that end. 
I'm sorry, not to get on a, a theological bandwagon here, but a, a movie, I know, yeah. a movie of this caliber, I'll kind of throw my two cents in here. So when I saw this movie, I was just born again. I was raised Catholic up until fifth grade. I left the Catholic Church. I was a pronounced agnostic, borderline atheist for many, many, many years. I'm not going to bore anyone with details, but there were a certain situations in my life that led me to Christ and led me to be born again months before I saw this movie. Still to this day, I am, you know, I am of the Baptist faith. I am the same faith as Ken is, but I have a pronounced sense of humor. I do not let things really get in the way of my faith. And you make a very, very good point here, Ken, is that people that really have a strong faith in their religion, some of those people are sensitive to things like this. People generally of that strong faith are not really pronounced in the ways of the world, quote unquote. They might not even know who a Kevin Smith is, let alone half the people in this movie. This movie is not made to people of that caliber. They probably shouldn't see this movie because they're not going to enjoy this movie. This movie is made for people that have a, dare I say, a warped sense of humor who do not let things upset them are also not watching Kevin Smith movies for theological advice. <laughs> okay. Right. It's Kevin Smith. You're not taking anything he says as dogma or doctrine, if you will, watching these movies. Like I said earlier, this is more of a highbrow comedy. There is a lot of intellectual things that he says in this movie that really get you to think. I mean, the fact that you have that time period between Christ's birth and his death, there's that time period when he's a kid, and you don't know anything about that. And I think that a lot of the things that are said, you know, with Alan Rickman telling him that he's the son of God and, you know, all the stuff that Rufus is saying about this time period. It's quote-unquote Kevin Smith fantasy world, but it does get you to kind of think and kind of keep an open mind going, you know, that there are some good points made here. Mm -hmm. There are points made that, you know, is Christ male? Is he female? Is he black? Everyone seems to have their own perception of that. And a lot of this movie is really just a a satire on organized religion in general. Right. You can't take it seriously. I mean, you just got to keep an open mind and have a little fun with it. I mean, let's be honest. The Jason Muse character alone is going to offend anyone <laughs> who doesn't have any type of sense of humor, whether they are Christian, atheist, Jewish, Muslim. His character alone out the gate is going to offend anyone who is sensitive. It's funny that we're talking about this because in the beginning of the movie, you, you have this scene where Loki is talking to a nun. And right. basically, he's, right. talk, he's telling her about, I think it's uh, Alice in the Looking Glass. There's a poem in the book by Lewis Carroll through the Looking Glass. I believe it's called Jabberwocky. And that's what he uses as a metaphor to to explain what religion is and why he, she's... Yeah, he loves to keep, to keep the clergy on their toes because they're exactly. so weak. That makes me laugh every time. It's because, a great opening scene. Yeah. What's funny about that scene, of course, the lady who plays the nun was also in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And she played the one that would go to make-believe land. And she had this persona of goody-two-shoes, basically. And she wanted to play this role to kind of separate herself from that. If you watch them, they're on the escalator. And she's like the grabbing the wine and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> she's in the background and she's drinking up and somebody's right. trying to stop her. It's really She's funny. still in her nun outfit. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah. I think we got a little off topic, but it's hard not to address that this aspect of the movie. You kind of have to. Yeah, because I, I mean, it, it is dealing with a lot of belief. It was really this movie that changed my belief from a belief to an idea. I think that's a huge thing. I think that's why maybe some organizations and some have issues with this because it changes it from a faith to an idea. Kevin Smith is pushing some certain things, some ideologies on people in this movie. It's a fun movie and it should be taken as fun, but he is pushing some stuff. You have the pro-life, pro-choice at the beginning of the movie. Not only do you have the scene at the woman's clinic, but you also have it during the sermon at the Catholic Church. There's a softball game against the pro-lifers. 
that is so catholic catholic <laughs> where i grew up the catholics would have a softball game against the baptists or the protestants that's ingrained and so that had to have come from something that he knew about oh sure it's funny because it's true but the fact that bethany works at the women's health clinic it's irony is what it is and there's a lot of great uses of irony in the movie I see what you're saying on that, but he does kind of push a pro-life agenda when he's playing Silent Bob and Jay says, you know, me and Bob are pro-lifers. Pro-choice. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, pro-choice. they're there to pick up loose women. <laughs> yeah. But every movie has that. Every right. director, producer pushes some type of agenda as if I was making a movie, I would do the same thing. But this movie, if you think about it, think about all the topics that are discussed in this movie that are relevant today. Abortion. Black Lives Matters is brought up on this. Right. It's subtle, but it's it's brought up. Yeah. When I was watching it a couple days ago, I was like, wow, this is almost really topical. You got women's right. Got right. is Jesus a woman? Is he a man? Is he black? Is he Asian? Is he I mean, it's just so many topics today that can be brought up. It really does hold up well. I agree. I think there's a lot of topics that people need to concern themselves. But then at the same time, you have somebody like Kevin Smith, they'll say, it's only a movie. Exactly. But, but at the same time, though, he is pushing, though, a agenda. So what? He's trying to eat, have his cake and eat it too. Not he's really. Trying to push, he's no. trying to push his no. ideology, but then tell you it's just a comedy. He's not pushing anything. You don't it's think so? Not at all. It's a comedy. Yeah. It's a comedy. I, Kevin Smith takes absolutely nothing seriously. Let's be honest. I disagree with you on that. I think he does take it seriously because I know kind of people like Kevin Smith. When I was 19, 20, people think they know all the solutions to the world. Kevin Smith's movies, for the most part, are fanboy movies where he talks about things that are important to him and puts it on the screen. I can't disagree with you on this. I do think that these issues are important to him. I do think he wants to put it out there, but he also wants to do it in a way that's him. All these movies in his universe is him. And if to say that he doesn't care about anything except for just making a movie, I disagree with that. No, 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 no. Not that he doesn't care about anything. I didn't say that. I said that he's not taking it as seriously as I think you're portraying that he is. Other directors out there, when they make movies, they have an agenda. This is all him. He's a, oh, he's, sure. a, he's a writer, he's the director, he's the producer. Everything that is in these movies that he does, in his but universe Kevin, especially. Kevin Smith is not out there putting out an agenda to destroy organized religion. He's giving his take. This is something that I think... He has to. You have to have some type of a plot, an agenda. You have to come at a movie with some direction and you have to focus on that direction. Mm -hmm. You can't just have the thing being pieced together with pro-life or pro-choice or, you know, you have to have some type of focus. Whether or not you agree with his agenda, his direction of the movie, that's completely up to the person who's watching it. But he does have to come together with it and put it on film and make it all cohesive and together. It's a movie. It's a movie. It's It's utterly impossible for a human being not to come to whatever project they're doing without some inherent bias. All of us have an inherent bias that's ingrained in us that are our opinions. Whether we intend it for it to come out or not, it's impossible for it not to be there because that's just how who we are as humans. I don't personally think that this movie had the intention of pushing any agenda. I think he set out to make a funny movie that just happened to lampoon something that, frankly, a lot of people are way too uptight about. Lampooning things that people are uptight about is, in my opinion, the essence of comedy. Because that means they're going to push you to a place where you're kind of uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, if you don't think it's funny, you can always turn the movie off. Or you might sit there and go, maybe I shouldn't be so serious and take everything in life so serious. I think anyone who is listening to this podcast and really likes Kevin Smith movies, I think one of the things that you need to watch at least one time in your life is the evening with Kevin Smith series, his Q&A sessions that he has with the audience. Those sessions really give you a strong insight to who Kevin Smith is, especially at the time of making these movies. 
I agree. In the end of the day, it is a movie, and it is a lampoon of a lot of different things about organized religion, which I agree. The only issue that I had here was there are things that, like Ted, you had talked about, was changing the faith to an idea. To me, that's a little bit serious in a movie because it's taking your comedy and then switching it and saying, you know what, you should look at this and you should change yourself. But that's up to the person who's watching it. I didn't get that. That was Ted's view. My view is completely different. That was my personal thing. And I was on a journey at that point of my own journey. Because this movie, I've seen this movie in different stages of my life from 1999 when it came out. And I'm a completely different person than I was back in 1999 when I saw the movie. But I will say, as I've evolved and went down my journey certain things from this movie i continue to take things out of this movie that are like reinforce things that i've come to believe i think that's common that that's my inherent bias that i bring to the movie sure see this is what's lost a lot of times even in polite society i'm going to bring something different to the table than anybody else is going to bring and my opinion might not matter as much but i still had a journey to get to where i'm at to sit there and just say that he's pushing an agenda and like my personal journey then said caused me to reinforce some things hey maybe i am looking at some things a little too seriously than what I really should, and I should have more of a sense of humor about it. I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that. I feel like we've beat a dead horse to the ground here. Time to put it out of its misery. So let's move on and let's talk about, let's actually talk about the movie here. So Mm. Kevin's, what a concept, right? What a concept. Kevin Smith's movies have been known for his dialogue. Do you feel the dialogue here in this movie is up to the standards that he has put forth in his previous movies? It's his best dialogue. I completely agree. It's not necessarily better. It's more evolved. We had mentioned the scene at the beginning of the movie with Loki and the nun. That is some really intense conversation dialogue between two characters. And those sort of interactions happen throughout the entire movie. I think the dialogue that talks about religion, basically, I think is very, very, very good. I think it's outside of those religious talks that the dialogue kind of takes a dip a little bit. Certain characters are kind of a little blah, per se. And I could probably have done a little less with Jay and his sexual remarks throughout the whole film. It got a little old after a while. Everything that Jay would say, basically, had sexual overtones to it. And for me, that was kind of a little different than the Jay that I saw in the previous three movies. I mean, he was still that guy, but... We take Mallrats, for instance. He's not talking about sex every single moment of the time frame. But in here, that's all he talks about throughout the whole movie. That's true. Yeah, he does. You're right. He's a very uh, immature character when it comes to that. And I'm sure Kevin Smith had a reason for that. It was probably being, as I look at it, you've kind of got the extreme of characters. He's probably the most immature character in the movie. And he's probably that way for a reason. They take that immaturity all over the place. They, oh, yeah. They talk about him about being gay. You know, when you masturbate, you do it the most of anybody in the world. He goes, well, tell me something that nobody knows. When you do Thinking it, you think about guys. So, and he goes, not all the time. It's different than what we've seen Jay before. Maybe that's another aspect of his character. But for me, it just was a little too much. The one time I enjoyed the Jay character was when he came up with the idea of seeing... Cardinal Glick. And he says that we should try to have him stop the dedication. Sure. The dedication. And I thought that was the best line that he had in the whole movie. But the rest of the movie is him trying to get it on with uh, Bethany. True. Yeah. And you talk about the dialogue. It's also his writing. Just look at what he did with Mubi. The Golden Calf. Great, great scenes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you have Mubi, who has his own set of fast food restaurants, has amusement parks, and all of that, it makes me wonder how far he was going to lampoon Disney. Because this is kind of a shot across the bow at Disney. Disney had a problem with this movie, releasing it through Miramax. Went through Lionsgate, didn't it? Yeah, it went through Lionsgate. The whole idea of creating Mubi as the golden calf, to me, is is hilarious. When they're in the boardroom and they're going across each... That is a great scene, yes. ...different person's sins. Right. That's some next level of writing from Kevin Smith. 
I think this is part of the disappointment of some of his later work. We're trying to hold him to this level of writing. We're holding him to the 1990s Kevin yeah. Smith. And we're trying for him to achieve, again, that level of writing. And it falls short, especially in the three Askewverse movies. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, and Jay and Silent Bob the Reboot. Three of his weakest movies, in my opinion. Right. We're trying to hold him to the level of writing that was here in Dogma. And it might not be fair, because when he's tackling something like this, I think he's at his best. This is his peak right here. Well, let me ask you, was he married when he did Dogma yet? Just married, and he had okay. just had just his had, wife had had uh, Harley Quinn as daughter. Okay, so look at his works from ninety four to ninety nine. For the most of it, he's single. He's overweight. He's having a good time. He's not taking life seriously. Now, after this, he's married. He has a daughter. He eventually has a heart attack. Right. He loses a whole lot of weight. He's really turning into a thirty something, forty something adult. Right. And when someone grows up, you evolve, whether you want to admit it or not, you evolve. Right. And that evolution definitely has taken a difference in his writing. I agree. So guys, this movie was made for $10 million. Do we see $10 million in this movie? What do you think of the special effects and the look of the movie? I think the special effects and the look of the movie are great. I mean, for $10 million, you had a majority of your cast, your big names working at scale. So more money can be spent on the actual movie itself, special effects, locations. Uh, I think it looks great. I think the movie looks really good. The CGI that is done is done well. Like when the hockey playing demons take the hockey stick and make a hole in the screen yeah. I, it doesn't look hokey. It doesn't look like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It holds up for 99, too. So right. Yeah. Even Jason Lee's CGI uh, horns. Horn. If you didn't know that they were CGI, for the longest time until I was watching recently the movie with commentary, I learned that they were CGI. I thought it was done with makeup artists. There's yes. some things that look a little cheesy. When uh, Bartleby is flying up in the air and dropping humans from the sky, right. it doesn't look that great. I mean, I didn't think it looked too fake, though. I've seen a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, oh, God, yeah. But then when he also explodes at the end, it's kind of eh. What did you want him to do? I don't know. It just looked like something that maybe me and you and Eric can like rig up and do. I mean, it didn't look like it was that big of a deal. Well, no, don't get me wrong. Still, I mean, it's still come a long way from Tom Savini doing the special effects from Evil Dead. It's sure. come a long way since then. And then you have the demon, the Golgothan, the, the Golgothan. Golgothan. It might give, have purposely give, looked give like cre- that. Give, give credit where credit's due. It's the Golgothan. He's the shit demon. Right. I thought the when the, he was like growing in the pile of poop, basically, in the bathroom, I thought that was kind of cool looking. But then when he actually comes out and they do battle with him. I know. He looks like a part. rubbery monster. But yeah. I mean. That's what he was. Exactly. It was, a guy, it was a guy in a rubber costume. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which well. is, that's an awesome job if you can get it. Yeah. What were you? I was the shit demon in Dogma. You're hired. Yeah, that's on my resume. Silent Bob and and Bethany were supposed to do battle against him again at the end when they're trying to pull the plug on God. I'm kind of glad that they didn't do that. I am too. I think they actually played it for an audience to see how that worked. Memory serves me correct, and they didn't particularly care for it. The other thing is the movie is had on the long side. This doesn't feel like over two hours, but there are some things that we can easily cut out of this movie. I was ready at the end for that sequence to lead to the end. That's why I'm glad that they didn't extend the sequence of her essentially pulling the plug on the body that God's inhabiting. So what do you guys think of these uh, casting choices? Gotta love Alan Rickman right off the bat as the voice of God. He elevates any movie that he's in. You definitely need someone with a British accent to play the voice of God. Of course. And I think Alan Rickman was a great choice. Alan Rickman is awesome. And he brings a level of authenticity to the movie that some other people probably wouldn't have. Because Alan Rickman's a serious actor. This is a guy who has some real chops as far as acting goes. And you're right, Ken. He does bring everything up that he's in. Look at what he did for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Exactly. He's the best part of that entire movie. The first time I ever saw Alan Rickman, unfortunately, was in Galaxy Quest. He's hilarious. He's he's great in it, yes. I love that movie. It's it's a great movie. The only person I could see playing God outside of Alan Rickman would be Morgan Freeman. The voice of God, yes. And he did play God in Bruce Almighty. 
right. twice. And Alan Rickman at this time is probably the biggest heavyweight on this cast, even though you have Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They're building up their resume at this time. They've got some good movies already in the tank, but Alan Rickman is kind of like the heavyweight here in this movie. They started filming this two days after they won their Oscar. Right. For best writers for uh, Goodwill Hunting. Hunting. Yes. We're at the very infancy of Ben and Matt becoming Ben and Matt, essentially. But their casting is equally as great because it's really neat. They are best friends and then they're playing best friends in the movie. And you can tell that they have a chemistry between them that Loki and Bartleby should have. Originally, Jason Lee was going to play Loki. Which is interesting because I love him as Azrael, and I actually have a note from watching the movie again that said, Jason Lee as Azrael, he brings the perfect amount of snarky. He does. That's sarcastic. Yes. He's his character in Mallrats almost, that kind of sarcasm that kind of comes up, but he's matured a little bit, but the sarcasm is still there. I don't think there was enough Jason Lee in this movie. I think he had some scheduling conflicts, and I think that's the reason why he got downgraded to a maybe lesser role. I like Jason Lee, and I could see Jason Lee playing Loki, because when I think of Loki, as far as the Greek god, He's Norse mythology. But he's mischievous. He's always Mm -hmm. getting himself into trouble. About the nun, that's Loki. To me, that's that's Loki, Loki, messing with somebody. This kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where it's kind of Kevin Smith's fantasy world, because Loki is the Norse god of mischief, and Azrael, the biblical tradition, is the actual angel of death. So he kind of used his own ways about that. It's funny that he's got them kind of switched around. Right. One casting issue that I have here is probably uh, Linda Florentino. I like her in the scene with Ben Affleck on the train. They're back and forward with their discussion about their relationship with God. I love this scene. It's awesome. But outside of the scene, I don't care about her character. There's nothing about her that I I like. I would rather seen maybe Janine Garofalo played this part. And I think Kevin Smith has mentioned that if he had to do it all over again, that's who he would have picked to play Bethany. He has said that. Because he said Linda Florentino was very hard to work with. She was there during the whole time this movie was being made where other people were coming and going because they had other projects. And... Uh, but poor Linda, Linda didn't have anything else going. Not anything else going. I guess there were times where she wasn't even talking to Kevin Smith on set. And she, I think she's a fine actress, but here I just don't have any sympathy for this character. When she dies, I'm not like, oh, she's dead. Oh, no. I don't care. I really don't care. She doesn't bring a lot of depth to the character, whereas the other actors, I think, do. And that's unfortunate. I have liked her and other things that she's done. Yeah, you're exactly right, though, Ken. That's the one place that I would probably change that decision as far as her and i think janine garofalo's uh sarcasm would have really played well in this movie yes that scene in the abortion clinic where they're going back and forth about her job her life catholicism i think they played very well off of each other and her sarcasm i think would have really worked out better in the characters bethany that really works a lot with kevin's writing and his dialogue very sarcastic sure So I think having somebody who's sarcastic, if you listen to interviews with Ben Affleck, he's that sarcastic as well. So if you look at... If you look at the actors who have flourished in the Kevin Smith movies, they have that level of sarcasm in their personality. Before we move on, my favorite casting of this entire movie is George Carlin as Cardinal Glick. Which I would have loved to see more of. I would take a whole movie of George (laughs) Carlin. Cardinal Glick? Yeah. Cardinal Glick. His day-to-day activities just throughout what... You could build a whole movie on him. I mean, I'll be perfectly transparent. George Carlin is a hero of mine. I love George Carlin. I thought that he was one of the funniest men to have ever lived. He's in his full power as Cardinal Glick. He's the original sarcastic comedian, and he brings that level right through that entire character. It's almost like he's relishing this opportunity to just lampoon somebody that he has this opportunity. Because he is he's playing the stereotypical pompous cardinal, someone high up in the Catholic Church who has all this power and all this authority. And this is almost what you expect of someone in this position. And it's completely lampooned, but it is it's almost so deadpan on it's funny. Yeah, he's absolutely terrific. We would be remiss.
remiss without saying how good Chris Rock is mm-hmm. as Rufus, too. Oh, yeah. Maybe my second favorite character. Out Originally, and, he was looking Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, he was. Which Ooh. that would be funny, too. Though. True. There was an interview with Chris Rock. And he's like, and they were making fun that Samuel L. Jackson was in everything at that particular time, which is probably why they couldn't get him. Chris Rock is like the other black man that's in the movies when Samuel L. Jackson isn't available. So, well, Chris Rock was in 99. He was a pretty big stand-up comedian in his own right. Yeah, he was I at mean, the height of his stand-up. Was he doing any acting? I can't think of any movies that Chris Rock was in at that time. He was a a dedicated stand-up. Chris Rock's movie career was actually starting to probably take effect at that particular time. So I mean, yeah. you, you have movies like, and this might be a little bit later, but like Head of State. He started getting these bigger roles as he... Um, when he left SNL. Well, yeah. SNL was kind of like not really good for him in that particular time. But he was in Lethal Weapon 4 before this. Oh, wow. So, That's... Well, Lethal Weapon 4 was, was a big movie. He was in New Jack City before, Sergeant Bilko, Dr. Doolittle. I mean, maybe not movies that we think are great, but these are movies that are out and he shows always in cameo appearances and like Eddie Murphy's vehicles so oh, sure. as well one of the problems that I had with the movie a little bit was with Alanis Morissette playing God so originally it was supposed to be Emma Thompson that was going to play God now the way that God is presented at the end here is almost kind of blah and maybe anybody could have probably played it anyone just, could have played that part when she looks at Jay and Jay all of a sudden you know is mesmerized because it's God I didn't buy it I would have liked to seen somebody Maybe, maybe a little bit of higher stature. I know you're not going to get Meryl Streep. You know, Meryl Streep plays God. I'm buying it. So. But, but at the same time, Alanis Morissette is not where I would choose. I don't have a major problem with Alanis Morissette playing God at the end. That's a tough thing. I mean, I could hear arguments on both sides of this coin about whether or not to not having a line, you would want a better actor to do that. I'm not going to throw stones yeah, ironically enough, the role of God has a, that big of an impact on the. End isn't of the movie. it? Uh, isn't it ironic? Don't yeah, you think? Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a jagged little pill. To jagged swallow. little pill. That's right. Yeah. Great album. Going back to the Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, I I love the chemistry with them, and they were brought together after Jason Lee couldn't do it. After seeing Goodwill Hunting, Kevin Smith said, "This will work. You two working together because of the chemistry they had on that movie. He saw working here, and the chemistry is great here. I mean, it's really enjoyable. And I'm not a big Ben Affleck fan. I'm not a huge uh, fan of his. I feel like his acting is kind of limited. I think Matt Damon is by far a superior actor to Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck might be and all said done. He'll turn out to be a great director. The chemistry when they're talking with each other, you could buy into the." that they've been together for a millennium because they understand each other. Matt Damon had a hard time playing this character because he had never done a comedy up to this point. It's not a very comedic role per se, but there's things that he does that we find funny. Again, we go back to the nun thing because we enjoy that because it's, it's hilarious watching that all unfold. Or his just sarcasm when he's buying the gun at the gun store. You yes. That's yeah, so great. Yeah. It's not a flaming sword. You know, it's more compact. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had a big crush on Selma Hayek in the 90s. I don't think she brings a lot to the table in this movie, but it's Selma Hayek. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, she's a great actress, very attractive, but her character, her lines, really, there's many other people that could probably done equal or better. Yeah. In fact, I think she got nominated for a, a Raspberry. For a, a Razzie? A Razzie Award? Razzie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. For this movie? Yeah, for this movie, I believe. Interesting. I don't think there's anything that she does wrong here, but there's nothing here that... Nothing that would be Razzie-worthy. I read somewhere where her character and Jason Lee's character, who's also amused, there's a rumor that they were going to play them off being brother and sister. I thought that was kind of interesting if that was Oh, clearly, brother and sister. That would have been cool. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Okay, guys, so now that we're done with the casting, the end of the movie, we have all these uh, dead corpses lying around. We have the angels. They're dead. Have these characters been saved? Are these characters dead? Are they non-existent? What is your take of what happens to these characters that look like they have been executed? I would say that when God appears and she erases all the bodies, all the existence, everything that uh, happened, and now it's a clean slate. It's nice outside. There's no debris. There's no dead bodies. There's no death. Obviously, I think, in my opinion, she has pretty much erased everything that happened from when uh, Loki and Bartleby appeared at the church and initially started their destruction. I think it's pretty much wiped off, clean slate, and now it's all playing out from when uh, they're trying to enter the church. 
I agree with Eric. I think what she does is essentially, like you said, she erases what Bartleby did. That's why in Jane Silent Bob, the reboot, Brian O'Halloran's character of Grant Hicks, he's a newscaster now because otherwise he would have been, he would have was one of the ones that perished at the hands of, of Bartleby. But I think she makes that decision to erase that because it needed to happen. Otherwise, that's a big downer, the way to end the movie, in my opinion. But as far as Bartleby and Loki, I you, I don't know exactly what happens to Bartleby and Loki because you almost feel bad for Loki because he is kind of manipulated by Bartleby throughout the movie, and he makes you wonder even back when they drunkenly went and confronted God about whether or not God should be executing humans. You kind of get the feeling that Bartleby has been pulling his levers, so to speak, to mm-hmm. get him to to do things that aren't always the best. If one of the two of them would have been saved at the end, it would have been Loki. Like Kevin Smith says, it's up to the the viewer to decide. Well, we do see Loki in the reboot. And Loki does, at the end, challenges him and risks his life to try to stop him from doing what he's doing. And so I think Loki is saved. To what extent? It depends on your level of Catholicism, I guess. Is he in purgatory again? Is he in Wisconsin? (laughs) Right. Or New Jersey. I like Alan Rickman. Was Wisconsin that bad? Really that bad? (laughs) I'd like to think uh, maybe they don't even have any uh, recollection of anything that probably happened. I do think Bartleby, he is obliterated. I don't think he is forgiven. I don't think the angels could be forgiven because in order to be forgiven of your sins, I believe you have to be part of that grace and the angels are not part of that grace. That grace is designed for human beings only. That's something else for another time that we could talk about. Which irritates Bartleby more than anything in the scene where they're in the garage. He's like, these people, he's given them everything. They can even just deny him if they want. They have free will. You know, but he's jealous. He's He's so jealous. hugely jealous. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of the movie, he's at the airport, and he's enjoying watching people, like that couple. And he's like, yeah, she's cheated on him twice, but I love the fact that that doesn't matter anymore. And he's thinking about what happened with his relationship with God. That's why he's pointing that out, is because he wants that relationship back. Slowly, he shows that he's more and more jealous of the human nature by the time the movie ends. And he's just looking for revenge, and that's what happens at the end. He didn't have to kill all those people. He's just letting off steam. The reason for it is because he's getting news from Azrael that he's going to be killed. He could have just walked through the doors of the church. He didn't have to go and pick up random people in town, as they said, and just start <laughs> dropping them. You know, like well, he's jealous. He's of jealous yeah. of God's girlfriend. The human race is God's girlfriend in his eyes. He needs to take a vengeance not only out on God, but the spouse here that basically has taken him away from him. There's so many facets of this movie that I do enjoy very much, and we could talk about it for a long period of time. But it's interesting to see the progression of his character throughout the film from going someone who admires the human beings to being somebody that just despises them. Well, before we wrap up, Ken, there is something that I do want to touch on, and that is the availability of the movie Dogma and people being able to catch it on streaming services or on Blu-ray. It's not possible. Well, kind of possible. I I did watch it off of YouTube yesterday, probably illegally. It is illegal off of YouTube. But to actually own a copy of it, it's only available really on DVD. And the reason behind this is Disney refused to distribute the movie when it came out because it was deemed too controversial. And because Disney owned Miramax Films. And so Miramax was not the distribution arm for this movie. And so Bob and Harvey Weinstein, they essentially bought the movie and then sold the distribution rights to Lionsgate Films. And that's who ended up distributing the movie. Well, that was 20 years ago now, and all of those distribution rights have lapsed. And we know what has occurred in Harvey Weinstein's life, and we found out what kind of a monster he truly was. But they essentially are holding this movie hostage, and they won't let anybody distribute it through any sort of streaming service or through even Blu-ray. I believe there was only one printing of the Blu-ray. If you do go on Amazon looking for a Blu-ray copy, they're insanely expensive. I'm on eBay right now, and they're anywhere between $45 and $100. 
And that's unfortunate because this is a movie that should be available. And it's sad that Kevin Smith essentially now is being held hostage for one of his creations by Bob and Harvey Weinstein. And I think he should have been held hostage for his creation, so I agree with that. I'm just kidding. They say publicly that they're willing to come to the table with Kevin Smith to form some distribution contract is disingenuous at best because they know for a fact that no company will do business with them as things currently stand. I think that they should do the right thing, sell the movie back to Kevin Smith or whoever is going to distribute the movie correctly because one person acted completely criminally and now the future enjoyment of a movie is at stake essentially because the technology that it's on right now in DVD DVD is not a dead technology, but things have progressed so far from into Blu-ray and now into streaming. And it's sad, too, because last year was the 20th anniversary of the movie. And all of Kevin Smith's other movies have gotten anniversary-style treatment. And nobody was able to celebrate Dogma. And Dogma is probably, in a lot of people's opinion, probably Kevin Smith's best movie. And I, I think that that's just a very unfortunate thing. I feel bad for Kevin Smith because it's, this seems to be a, a bone of contention with him, because I don't think that the Weinstein company is being genuine in saying that they would come f- and make a deal with him, because Kevin has come out so hard against Harvey. And he's even said that he would have foregone his entire career had he known what Harvey was doing. Unfortunately, I don't foresee a solution to this problem. But, you know, a company like Disney, why couldn't they do the right thing now and get the rights back and release it under the Miramax label again? It remains to be in the sea in the future, and we'll see how it progresses. But as it stands right now, it's it's being held hostage. So everyone out there listening, if you got a Blu-ray copy of this movie, you're sitting on some gold. Okay, well, that's our basic review of the movie itself. Uh, Eric, you have some errors and omissions that you want to share with us. Yeah, Ken, there were a few uh, small mistakes in the movie. Nothing real major, but a few things you might uh, recognize. When Silent Bob renders the demon disabled by using his anti-odor spray, knocks out strong odors, you see him take the spray out of his coat and spray it with his thumb. However, it cuts to a front view, and he's clearly seen using his index finger, and it cuts to the rear view. Bob's rear view there. Again, you see it spraying with his thumb. Minor. Uh, When Silent Bob carries Bethany's body back to the church after she's been killed by God's blast of lightning, watch her fingers when Silent Bob puts her down. She adjusts them to rest them more comfortably on her arm. I don't even know what this one is, but uh, says the writing on the second book from the left on the right of Bethany's bed changes colors in different scenes. Wow, you have to really be looking close. You really got to be looking for that one, yeah. Some interesting little tidbit facts here about it. We all know uh, Kevin Smith loves Spielberg movies, and there's a reference to them in a number of his movies. In the scene where Silent Bob throws the pair off the train, he remarks to a bewildered onlooker, no ticket. This is actually the same as in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right. Where Harrison Ford throws the German guard off the Zeppelin and remarks the same line to the bewildered-looking couple. He has a love for Burt Reynolds, and the lady that Azrael yes. has killed is named Mrs. Reynolds because they wanted to figure out a way to kind of get a Burt Reynolds homage in there somehow. So here's another little interesting tidbit fact that uh, I didn't even think about until I read this. Makes a little bit of sense now. So when Jay drags Bethany behind the PA equipment system at the end of the movie and says she'd agree to sleep with him if it was the end of the world, what does he do? Anyone know? Tries to take off his pants, right? Before that. No? He pulls out a condom. If it's the end of the world, why are you going to use a condom? (laughs) I know. It's stupid, but... Didn't think about that. I didn't either. I'm like, okay. That's really about it. Nothing too out of the ordinary there. If you guys can think of anything else, let me know. Just something that's interesting, because this is a View Askewverse movie. The bus company that Loki and Bartleby are trying to get a ticket to New Jersey on is the Darris bus company. Oh, I did see that. Yes. Rick Darris, right? Yeah, Darris bus lines. And then, of course, uh, Jeff Anderson plays the gun clerk and the gun store. Yep. That's, that's pretty funny, too. He put on a lot of weight, too. Doesn't he even did. look like him. 
was a little disappointed, though, that he wasn't a reoccurring character from Clerks because being behind the desk and trying to sell guns and giving crap to, like, let's say, Loki, and then Loki takes right. him out with the gun. Randall meeting Loki would have been Epic. absolutely amazing. It would have been, it would have been great if the place was called, like, Randall's Gun Store or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But then Randall would have had to have left New Jersey at that Of point. course. Of course. It's still pretty funny. That would have been awesome. So I'd like to bring up one interesting thing here. I know when we were talking earlier about this, in the extended DVD cut, there are deleted scenes in the movie. And I know you guys mentioned you didn't watch any of the deleted scenes. Is that correct? Correct. There's one deleted scene in here that really, really caught me. It's probably about a 10-minute scene. It's hardcore. I mean, it's hardcore in depth. So at the beginning of the movie, when she is driving to her job at the abortion clinic and she walks past the guys holding the signs, and then after that, she immediately has a conversation with Janine Garofalo. Between her walking in and between her meeting with Janine Garofalo, there was a scene that was cut out. She's actually, her position at that abortion clinic is she is a counselor. And there is a scene in there where there is a girl who is in there. She's signing up to have an abortion. It turns out it's her third time. And she is a counselor. And she's just kind of talking with her about it. And she goes, well, I'm not going to try and talk you out of it, but there's things you need to know. And she's like, you know, I can tell you my story, but it'll bore you. And she's like, you know what? give it a try. Let's hear it. So Bethany goes into her backstory about what happened. And it's pretty gut-wrenching. The backstory on this, and this scene probably lasts about 10-12 minutes. And I can see why he kind of took it out for continuity purposes. But I think it was probably a scene that he should have kept in because you probably would have felt more of a, I don't want to say a liking, but more of a understanding of the Bethany character and what she went through. So she was dating a guy. They had unprotected sex. She got pregnant. The boyfriend wanted her to keep the baby. She did not want to keep the baby. He wanted her to keep the baby. Because of that, she could not go to an abortion clinic to have this abortion done because it would have been on record. So she went to a medical grad student friend of hers who did kind of like a back alley type of abortion. And she told her boyfriend at the time, I lost the baby. It was a miscarriage. And they got married and they tried to have a kid and they couldn't have a kid. And she went to the doctor and the doctor said that this abortion you had was done with some bad tools and you got an infection and it destroyed your uterus. And because of that, you can't have children. So she went back to her husband and told her that she can't have children. And her husband was not very understanding. And then she broke down and told her husband why she couldn't have children. And her husband said, I want a divorce. And he divorced her and it killed her. And he eventually got married and had two kids. But she was saying that because of this, it kind of ruined her life for a little while and really destroyed her faith in God. And this scene led into the scene with Janine Garofalo where they're having this conversation. So it's kind of a little bit of a backstory. I think if you knew the history of Bethany a little bit more, you might feel a little bit more empathy to why she's going through this huge crisis of faith. That's amazing because that would have provided the depth that Bethany's character is lacking. And it was a really good scene. I mean, it was almost like an Academy Award nominating. There's no comedy in this scene. She's trying to hold back tears when she's talking with this girl. It's really a great scene. There were a lot of outtake scenes, and they were kind of nickel and dime stuff that really you could care less about. But this one, I was like watching it going, wow, this should have been in. That's deep. Like I said, her history is only given like a couple of lines where you catch that he divorced her because she couldn't have kids. Right. But that's all it is. It's just a surface throwaway couple of lines, whereas this provides a level of depth and humanity to that character. All of the other characters have met it out for them in the movie. Right. You look at Azrael and Serendipity, they talk about choosing the sides between Lucifer and God, and then the Metatron talking about how painful it was for him to tell Jesus that he was the son of God. All of the backstory with Rufus All of the other characters, and even like Bartleby and Loki too, all of the other characters seem to have that depth brought to them 
they have that, a backstory. You know something more about them. Right. Maybe it wasn't Linda Fiorentino's portrayal that was the issue. Maybe it was the cutting of that particular scene because there are 10 minutes you could have cut from the movie that could have been in there and probably, well, it would have, in my opinion, would have changed my view of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it did kind of change my view of the movie. It's the, I just saw the scene two days ago. It's the first time I've ever seen it. And I was like, wow. It did change, and I probably, you know, I butchered the scene. You really should go back and watch it. It ties things together a lot better. If I'm hearing it and seeing it in my head right now, I think it would improve on how I look at this movie. Not only because it gives her depth of her character, it gives her depth of that profession, too. Christians look at these clinics as just they're turning out these abortions. You don't think about the actual sit-down with a girl who's had abortions and talk to her on how this might affect you in your life moving forward. Leaving that scene in would have been huge on so many levels. Yeah, it brings humanity. and But you're right, Ken. The humanity is lost on a lot of the people who are the protesting kind outside the clinics and that's very insensitive of what these people are going through. I'm so happy that you brought that up, Eric. That's a game changer. A little bit. That, that takes the movie from a good movie for me to an almost next level. <laughs> That particular scene that you described, that ties in to our discussion of dialogue and writing that shows just how far Kevin has come as a writer of movies. It's a game changer. This is a game changer. Right. It is. And I'm sorry he didn't keep it in the movie. I am too. That seems like a poor decision. Like I said, I could find 10 minutes, 12 minutes elsewhere in the movie that you could cut. Hour and 55 minutes. Wow. <laughs> Come on. Oh, now, oh, now, now we're, now we're now leading you're to just, it. Here we <laughs> go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. It's time for our reviews. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Ted, what did you think about Dogma? Dogma for me is a B plus. It's not quite an A because there are a few things, the, the length being one of them, that I think that it could have been cut down a little bit. And also, too, now that I know about that particular scene that was cut, it almost takes it down to a B because I want so much for that particular scene to be in the movie. But as an overall movie, there's no way I can't get it anything less than a B plus because I love all of the characters and I have fun with all of the characters. There's never a moment in the movie that I'm not enjoying it. At different stages in my life, I've always come back to the movie and I always find something to enjoy out of the movie. So I take great enjoyment out of it, but a couple of the negative things do take it down to a B and prevent it from being an A for me. I can't believe this movie's 20 years old. <laughs> but uh, when I first watched this movie, I was obviously in a different part of my life as, as we all were. And I was looking at it through different eyes. I thought it was like the greatest movie of the year in 1999 when I saw it. I was just fell in love with Kevin Smith. Couldn't wait for anything more, you know, all his movies to come out. I mean, I even like Jersey Girl, which is a totally different type of Kevin Smith movie. But for me, this movie holds up well. I think it has a lot of great topics that are being brought up today. Abortion, Black Lives Matter, women's rights, everything in this movie holds up. It's without a doubt either my favorite or second favorite Kevin Smith movie. It depends on what type of mood I'm in. If I want to see something stupid and slapstick, it's going to be mall rats. If I want something a little bit more serious and intellectual, it's going to be dogma. I think the the cast that he has works out great. Uh, even Linda Forentino's character, like I said, that scene, I wish it would have been in there. It would have definitely made her more of a stronger character. But even barring that scene, if I didn't know that scene ex existed, this movie still, for me, is an A-. minus. It's not an A or an A+. Plus. Just for the fact that I think I would agree with Ted that it is a little long. There are a few things that probably could have been cut out of it. But overall, this is a great movie. And I'll finish this out by saying that I'm giving this movie a B minus. I know everybody thinks B minus and thinking, whoa, that's not such a great grade. But people understand how I grade things and the number of movies I've watched. A B minus is a very good rating. It's actually my favorite Kevin Smith movie. Even though I graded Mallrats at the same grade of B minus, it's a different type of B minus in my opinion. Whereas I do think that this movie is something I would like to watch over and over again. I do think it has the possibility of being that B or B plus if that deleted scene was added on. 
very curious to go back and watch that scene because it makes me think that this could have been elevated to a, a better movie because Bethany is the lead character here. She should have more of a background that we can relate to. Leaving that out is a big mistake here and why the movie is not, to me, a, a higher grade. I enjoy the characters. Alan Rickman is awesome here as the voice of God. I, I'm sad that he's no longer with us because he, like I said before, elevates everything that he's in. One of the biggest reasons why people love the Harry Potter films is Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snake. Chris Rock is great. It's really enjoyable to see Chris Rock. I'm actually happy Samuel L. Jackson isn't in here. There's something about Chris Rock here that you can go out and have a cup of coffee with this character. Whereas I feel like Samuel L. Jackson, you're afraid that he's going to just like shoot your head off or something at any particular time based on the way he portrays his characters in this time frame. But this is basically Kevin Smith's, in my opinion, last good movie. I don't hate Jersey Girl, but there's some things in Jersey Girl that I just can't get past. And then you have Jay and Silent Bob strike back. It's not terrible. I was the only one in the movie theater when I saw that film. In fact, that was the only movie I saw of Kevin Smith's in the movie theater, and it had to be that one. There's some good things about that movie, but it's never again at the level of these four movies that he started off his career. So that ends our review of Dogma. Hey, Ted, where can they check us out on social media? Well, you can check us out on Twitter. We are Drive-In Double Feature Movie Review Podcast or at N underscore feature on Twitter. And we also have a fan page on Facebook, which is the Drive-In Double Feature podcast and also too, be sure to rate review us on the apple podcast app as well as spotify and anchor well thanks ted don't forget to check out our other episode that was released today chasing amy and chasing amy will conclude our review of the kevin smith month of october uh, next month for the month of november we'll be looking at stanley kubik so again thank you for joining us on our review of dogma right now it's time for us to say goodbye so so everybody see you at the movies all right everyone take care see you at the movies as well out with the outro music see you later mm-hmm.